in the long history of the church, it has been common in the worship service of the church to do the thing that we just did a few moments ago, and that is to greet one another in the name of Christ. And it is most common, I suppose, for that greeting to be a, a certain greeting. That greeting is peace be with you. And then the person to whom you say, peace be with you, says in response, and also with you. Peace. This greeting goes back to the beginning of things, I suppose. In the Hebrew greeting, shalom. And that greeting is bigger than it sounds. So much bigger, peace. In fact, in the Hebrew greeting, shalom, it's sort of the thing that means let everything be in its right place. Let everything be as it ought to be. Peace. So that everything is in relation to everything else properly and productively. So that there is peace. Peace meaning a lack of conflict and also a sort of settled assurance. All of these things. Peace. So we say that to one another in the worship service of the church. Peace be with you. It's a wish, a prayer. But we live in a world which is full of conflict and difficulty. It seems we have to fight. That's the opposite of peace. For everything good. Things seem unsettled, unsure, out of place. In fact, just this week we had the very difficult news that someone we know took their own life. Someone who's been a part of this church, but we haven't seen her for some time. It's out of order. Now, death is always out of order. It is not the way things are supposed to be. It is the consequence of our own disruption of the peace. In many cultures, that's one, that's, that's a crime, disturbing the peace. And yet the peace seems entirely disturbed almost all the time. However, <laughs> there is good news. 
there is good news. We're coming this morning to the closing prayer of the book of Hebrews. I forgot to do it, but I was at one point this week, I was thinking about going and looking up when we started the book of Hebrews. <laughs> it was a while ago. And we're coming to the end of the book of Hebrews. I think maybe we have one more sermon out of it, which will probably be something like a summary to remind you of everything that we've learned. So I hope you'll come back next week, and I promise it won't take too long. The closing prayer of the book of Hebrews. Well, it's very interesting that the book of Hebrews closes with a prayer. We do that. We, close, we end things with a prayer. I sometimes say this, prayer is all there is to the Christian life. And that's intended to make you think of all the other things you think are part of the Christian life. I do that on purpose. To make you think, but this and this and this are, are the Christian life. And I say to you, no. Prayer is all there is. And I'm not kidding. It's not a mere rhetorical technique. Prayer is the whole thing. The thing that Jesus died to make available to us is prayer. Salvation is prayer. And I hope you struggle with that idea because I think the more you struggle with that idea, the more you will be understanding what I mean and what is in fact the, the entirety of the Christian life, which is to pray. And I don't mean just formal prayer where you kneel down or sit down or whatever you do and close your eyes and bow your head and fold your hands and beg for something from God. I don't mean that alone. Hebrews closes with a prayer. It's a prayer that's kind of in a particular form. It has uh, the person who is being addressed. It has the grounds on which we approach that person to pray. It has the thing we're asking for itself, the petition. It has an expression of the means by which we expect an answer. And it closes with something you call a doxology, a praise. Closes with, to whom be glory forever. It's a prayer. So, 
Let's read it. This is Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory, the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So who is the prayer addressed to? Well, God. That makes sense. Prayers are addressed to God. In fact, when we say pray, we mean some sort of speaking to God. But this is a particular description of God. He is here called the God of peace. Peace. And if we were Hebrew speakers, he would be the God of shalom. Peace is a word that has to do with relation to things. It's a relational word. And God is pictured here as the God of peace, the source of all harmony. In fact, shalom could be said to be an element of the very nature of God. Because God is a triune God, three persons in one being, Father, Son, and Spirit, who have ever lived. They are the eternal one. And they have ever lived in perfect peace. Absolute harmony in every conceivable fashion so that Jesus in his prayer in John 17 says that they may be one as we are one. Well, their oneness doesn't eliminate their threeness. They are three persons. They have an eternal fellowship in perfect Peace, And it is in that sense that God is the God of peace. He has always been. He didn't become the God of peace when he made peace for us. He was already the God of peace. And that is why he makes peace. But that is the other way, the other sense in which he is the God of peace. He is the one who reconciles. The one who makes peace. The one who brings harmony. The one who restores good fellowship. In fact, if we looked at the book of Colossians, We'd read this in chapter 1, verse 19 of the book of Colossians. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, that is, in Jesus. And through Him to reconcile all things to Himself. 
to bring about restored peace. How? Well, it says right here, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. You notice this isn't just about people. This is about everything. You see, when sin broke things, it broke everything. And the Lord God, the God of peace, is restoring harmony to all things. Through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, the very definition of evil is disruption of peace, breakage of fellowship. To do harm is to break down good fellowship. And so when Adam and Eve turned away from God and then sinned against His law, they also sinned against each other. And their fellowship broke. And our fellowship has been broken ever since. And the very creation became uncooperative. And so we have to fight with the world in order to eat. But He is the God of peace, the one who reconciles. Though you were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet now He has reconciled you in His body through death. In order to present you before Him, God the Father, holy and blameless and beyond reproach, restoring harmony. That's the God that is addressed in this prayer. The God of peace. The God of eternal, harmonious fellowship who makes and restores harmony and fellowship among His people and between His people and Himself. And in the process, restores all broken things into wholeness. Shalom. So what is the grounds of this prayer? <laughs> On what basis do we bring this request? And we, are getting, we won't get to the request until a little later. Well, here it is. The God of peace who brought up from the dead. Now, the grounds is something about God, not something about the one asking. <laughs> In other words, he's saying, what, what makes me think God will pay any attention to this prayer? There has to be something about God. And what is it about God? Well, God is the one who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. 
Back in Isaiah chapter 63, we read this. And this is in the middle of a pronouncement of a prophecy that Israel will one day figure stuff out and turn to God. It says this, Then his people remembered the days of old, the days of Moses, where he who brought them up, I'm sorry, this is a question. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea? That's the expression, brought them up. Out of the sea with the shepherds, more than one, of his flock. Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them, among them? Who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name. Where is he? In other words, the people of Israel one day will start looking around for this God that they remember from the days of Moses, the days of their salvation out of Egypt, the days in which this word brought them up literally means they were dragged out onto the shore of the ocean, the sea. <laughs> now, of course, the story is they walked through the sea under the guidance of Moses, the shepherd. But this isn't, this prayer in Hebrews isn't about that salvation, is it? Here, we're talking about he, he's the one who brought up, not from the sea, from the dead. The one who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. Now, we've studied the book of John recently, although we've been studying the book of Hebrews for a long time, so maybe it wasn't that recently. But we looked in chapter 10, where we see Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. John chapter 10. Let me just read some of that to you. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I'm the door of the sheep, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. Sheep didn't hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. A little later on, he says, I, he repeats, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They'll hear my voice. They'll become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life for the sheep. He said that three times in one little short talk. I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me. 
but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This mandate I received from my father. Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, has not been brought up from the sea. This is a comparison of Moses and Jesus. Moses is considered a great shepherd of the sheep. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep who God, the God of peace, has brought back, brought up again from the dead. Through the blood of the eternal covenant. Well, that is an interesting expression, the eternal covenant. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So there's a bringing up from the dead in Christ. But who is in Christ those the Father draws? No one else. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, we read this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Oh my gosh. Not most of the spiritual blessings, not some of the spiritual blessings, every spiritual blessing. There isn't a blessing that you have not been granted in Christ if you are in Christ. Just as, here's one of those, He chose us in Him, the Father chose us in the Son before the foundation of the world. That's the eternal covenant. That we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. That's Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 6. That's the eternal covenant. The eternal covenant is a covenant of God's redemption of his lost children in his Son. Now, in the book of Hebrews, of course, we also read about this eternal covenant in chapter 9. Because in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 9, we have a comparison of the covenant given through Moses and the covenant received in Christ. This is Hebrews 9, 3. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle called the Holy of Holies had a golden altar of incense. It's various descriptions. Above it were cherubim. Verse 6. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest enters once a year, not without blood, which he offers first for himself. He brings two sacrifices, one for himself, and then he can come with the one for the people. 
for the sins of the people. The Holy Spirit signifying this, that the way into the holy place had, has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. In other words, they don't really solve the actual problem. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not the one made with hands, and, through the, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. This is the blood of the eternal covenant. Through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So, the eternal covenant is a covenant made between the persons of the Godhead in eternity past and carried out through this sacrifice of eternal redemption brought by the Son of God. But that's not all. In chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews, we also read about this comparison. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in great numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. In other words, the problem with those priests is they kept dying. So we had to keep on having new priests. And every day they had to make sacrifices. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Permanently. Therefore, he is able to also to save forever the eternal covenant. To save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives. He continues in his priesthood because he continues living. He always lives to make intercession for them. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests, who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. This is the eternal covenant. The eternal covenant is a covenant made among the three persons of the Trinity before time began, a covenant that is carried out in the sacrifice of Christ that provides an eternal redemption and his eternal intercession for those he redeemed in that sacrifice that goes on from that day forward and forever so that we are not saved, maybe, hopefully, and I hope it lasts, we are saved eternally. This is good news. This is good news. Somebody asked me this week, 
if a person commits suicide, are they lost? If they are in Christ, they are in Christ. And there is no reversal of that reality. Now, a person who is in Christ should always have great a living hope, as we sang. But sometimes people lose track. Sometimes even those who are in Christ might reach that desperate condition. But if you are in Christ, God, the God of peace, has made peace with you, and that is an eternal covenant established by Him before anyone else ever thought of you and carried out by Him on the cross, not by you, and promised in intercession from that day forward. There is no losable salvation because God is seeing to it. And He does not fail. Well, sorry, that was a bit of a detour, but the God of peace brought Jesus up from the dead, and here's the request on that basis, because we serve the God of peace, of harmony, of reconciliation, and because that peace has been purchased by the blood of the eternal covenant, here's what we want. Here's what the writer of Hebrews wants for the church that the God of peace may equip you in every good thing. That the God of peace may equip you. That's interesting. Not just that he will give you every good thing, but every good thing will be an equipping. <laughs> every good thing will be a preparation of you and for you. That he may equip you with what? Every good thing. Well, what constitutes a good thing? Well, I think it's here in the prayer, every good thing to do his will. To do his will. Now, when we talk about the will of God, we have to talk about it in two different ways. In fact, the New Testament has two different words. There's one word that's used for the will of God that is something God has declared will be, determined, like He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. There's another way to talk about the will of God that is talking about what pleases him, a sort of a word that means his desire, what he would like to see. Now, of course, when we're talking about God, you know, we're in over our heads. So how all of these things might be is, well, over our heads. But here he's using the the smaller word, the what God desires. In other words, what God would like to see done in this world now. 
And so the prayer is that God would give you, give us, whatever might be necessary that we might do. That's a very interesting word too. The word do here is a word for make. Like, I made some tacos. I don't know why I thought of tacos, but I like tacos. But I made something. What is it we're called upon in a certain sense to make in this prayer? The will of God. Things that would please Him. Now remember, who is He now? The God of what? Peace. Harmony. Fellowship. Love, we should say. So what pleases Him is His people Showing who he is. Making more peace, more harmony, more union. Now, there's more than one way you could do that, I suppose. There's one way you could do it which would not please him at all. Which is, you go along to get along. You just behave in whatever way makes anyone happy at the moment and calling that peace, but that's no lasting peace. So we need to be a little more sophisticated, I suppose, in our conception of what it means to bring about harmony because the harmony that God is interested in is the harmony of the cross. The harmony of redeeming love to do His will. And then he describes this another way, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. Okay, so it's what's pleasing in His sight, not what's pleasing in anybody and everybody's sight. Because that will just make you crazy after a minute. If you just try to please everyone... Instead, if you act for harmony in this world in a way that pleases Him, that's real. If you are sacrificially generous toward others, that's real. In a way that's actually beneficial, whatever they might imagine. Now, here's the thing. We're sort of in this sort of backside way, we're sort of called upon in this instance to do what pleases God, it seems to me. Except, who is the writer of Hebrews praying to? Not us. This is a prayer. And when we read the prayers of the New Testament, they do sometimes have this sort of implicit instruction about how to live like this one you know do what pleases him okay right but who's he asking this is not a prayer to the church it's a prayer to the god of peace 
who brought Jesus back from the dead. He's not asking that we independently produce the things that please God. Who in this case is working in us that which is pleasing in his sight? Not us. Him. You see, this is partly what we're getting at when we say prayer is all there is. Because what we do, even when we act in this world for the love of Christ, which is what we're talking about, when we act in this world for the love of Christ, even then it's Him working in us to do, to make what please, what's pleasing in His sight. If it's not, then it's phony, fake, not real. All actual righteousness is God's own righteousness played out in some person. If it's righteousness you drum up, <laughs> well, it won't be pleasing in his sight. And so, <laughs> if I am trying to do what's right in some way that is not depending at all times on His great providence, then I'm missing the point. The point is, I walk in fellowship with Him and reflect that fellowship in my fellowship with you and everything else. So that he is the one working in me. And that, of course, is something we ask for. We pray for. We don't look to me to produce goodness in this world. We look to him working in me to produce goodness in this world. This is a really critical thing. And it is very common for us to simply get religious and to say, what does God want so that I can do what God wants and then God will be happy with me and I will deserve my place before Him. He's the God of peace who brought up the great shepherd from the dead. He's the God of the eternal covenant. He's the God who redeemed you. He's the God who gave His Spirit in you, in us. He's the one who produces, who works in us that which is pleasing in His sight. And so, what do we do? Pray. 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 Now, that doesn't mean prayer is the only thing I ever do. Well, except it is. Because whatever else I'm doing is praying. That's the point. The, what Jesus died to provide to us was access to God. Access. 
to God. And so, the very thing, the way made for me by the blood of Christ is the way in to the holy place. We've gone over this in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10. Since he's made a way, let's go on in. Same thing. So he says, through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. How will he equip us through Jesus Christ? In our union with Christ, we have all the resources of God. As we read in Ephesians, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, he raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ. So where he is, I am. So I have constant access. And so I live my life in this world in constant reference to my life, which is in him. I'm living my in him life here. And he's living his in me life here. So Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the one who loved me and gave himself for me. I live by faith. So through Jesus Christ, Christ is our only standing for asking God for anything. And it's in Christ that we are given every good thing. It's this equipping that this prayer calls for is in Christ. Always in union with Christ. To whom be glory forever and ever. To whom be glory forever and ever. The unspeakable great magnitude of the gift of God in Christ. This is why you often hear me say, whatever it is you're praying about isn't anywhere near as important as the fact that you're praying. The fact that you have the privilege of child of God and can go into the very presence of God at any moment over anything and receive the warm embrace of a heavenly father and not the punishment of a heavenly judge. That reality is the biggest deal of them all, and it is what the book of Hebrews is entirely about. It is wholly about consider the unbelievable privilege that God has showered on you in His grace. 
try to drink the Niagara Falls of the grace of God in Christ. <laughs> and then you can't go anywhere else. And you will persevere in the things that are pleasing in His sight. You will become a living expression of that grace. To Him be glory forever and ever. Father, we give You thanks. Lord, You are the God of peace and You have sent our Savior, the One who is our peace, and You have sent Your Spirit who brings peace. Lord, we pray that we would be the people of Your peace, that we would express this amazing love to one another and to the world around us so that they might see, so that they might know that in Him is peace. We pray in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen.